We are now starting week two. All right. So week two, we're going to be talking about Catholicism. I'd like to finish up Catholicism tonight, um, but it is a big topic. So if we don't finish it tonight um, and we take it another week, then we'll go ahead and do that. Um, Does everybody have notes? Good? Okay. Now, if you notice in the back, there were some that were this week, some that were last week. So the ones that were last week, if you already had your notes from last week, you get that packet. So if you were not here last week or if you didn't bring your notes, you get the other one that says this week. So hopefully you guys got the right one. We're going to do a quick review through some of this stuff uh, so that we can pick up where we left off and get through this. All right. So we spent some time last week talking about Catholicism and we uh, saw the video from Father Mike from which I understand some of you also went and saw a few of his other videos as well. Uh, some of you got irritated really quickly. So um, I don't know why. But um, anyway, all right. But we saw that and we started getting into some of the details of this. Now, um, the thing about this is, is when you trace back the history, um, one of the things that is, is crazy, and actually I think it was, I think it was Lenin, I want to say, Lenin, who obviously led communist Russia, but he said that if, if um, was it him? I can't remember. You can tell me if I'm right, Rick, or not. It's the, uh, the quote that says that if you separate a person from their history, you can get them to believe anything. That was Karl Marx. That's who it was. Karl Marx said that. If you can separate a person from their history, you can get them to believe anything. And so one of the things that you'll find, especially if you study history, is that history has been edited by many, many people over the years. You need to go back and you need to really do some digging on your own to find out what's actually true. Because like, even American history, the people that wrote American history, it's very biased. And then people that write other sorts of history, it's very biased. Because like, if you had the ability to write your own story, guess what you're going to do? You're going to write it pretty good. You're going to write your story your way to make yourself look good. And that's pretty much human nature. But when it comes to Catholicism, they have done an incredible job of rewriting history. And making it sound as if there's something that they're really, really not. And one great example of that, that we talked about last week that we're going to talk about again is that many Catholics believe that Peter was the first pope. And so then you go from Peter and then they had the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. And so you have this full lineage and, you know, you can look it up. Just look up, you know, the list of popes or whatever and you'll find it. I mean, probably the top hit's going to be Wikipedia. And you go there and you find... Um, you know, person after person after person, they've got dates and everything that gives you the, who is the first pope, second pope, third pope, all the way. But the reality is, is the first actual pope within human history was Pope Leo the Great, and it was around 440 AD. Because he was the one that actually was in control of what was known as the Holy Roman Empire that touched multiple countries at that point in time. So Peter was not the first pope. There was not a succession of popes up until then, up until today, like the Roman Catholic Church will tell you. It's just one example of how they have completely rewritten history. So when you talk about the founding of the Roman Catholic Church, that goes back to Constantine. So I'm just going to go through this very quickly as a review for those of you who weren't here last week. So the founder is Constantine. This is on page two of your notes. The founder is Constantine. He was the first... Holy Roman Emperor. He was the first Holy Roman Emperor. And that title today is used for the popes. The popes are referred to as the Holy Roman Emperor within their little Vatican city that is its own sovereign nation sitting in the middle of Italy. So you have Constantine. So Constantine, just in a nutshell, he provided the structure of the Catholic Church. He was the Emperor of Rome from 306 to 337. He fought, fought victoriously against Maxentinius over the right for sole rulership of the country, uh, of the empire. 
in 1312, there was the Battle of Milvium Bridge where the two met. And Constantine has a vision at some point during or before the battle. This vision consisted, and this is his own words in written history, the vision consists of a cross in the shape of the first two letters of the Greek word for Christ, which is that symbol there on your guys' study sheet. It looks like with a P with the X. He hears a voice saying, By this sign thou shalt conquer, and proceeds to place this symbol on the soldiers' helmets and shields. Because of his experience, Constantine now considers himself a Christian. There's, his testimony is very, very weak. Um, in fact, he believed in baptismal regeneration, and he refused to be baptized until he was right, right before he was about to die. And he believed that his salvation was dependent upon that. So if he died believing what he said he, he believed, then he is not in heaven today. That's Constantine. So he believed that he could use God because of this voice and this vision in order to conquer, and he in fact did conquer and became the first Roman emperor. All right, and then he does this thing that's very important. It's called the Edict of Milan, and that's in 313. This was a proclamation of religious tolerance in the entire Roman Empire with special benefits to Christians. Christians were granted absolute freedom and had property previously confiscated, returned to them. Pagan temples offensive to Christianity were destroyed. Clergy were exempt from taxes and became paid by the state. By 324, Constantine promises 20 pieces of gold and a white robe for all new converts, and this begins the marriage of the church with the state. So this is the first time where this occurred. Now, prior to this, when you do your history, you'll find that Christians were persecuted to no end. I mean, they were persecuted like crazy. In fact, historically, there are 10 major Christian persecutions in the Roman Empire. And Nero was some of the worst. And I've already told you some of his stories of what he used to do. I mean, he had magnificent gardens and he wanted to light up his gardens. And so what he did is he would take people that were offensive to him, and Christians included, and he would impale them, which means taking a big spear and putting it up through them. So imagine a spear just going up through your groin, up through your neck, because you're still alive, missing all the vital organs, and then covering them with pitch and then setting them on fire while they were still alive. And he would plant them in his gardens in order to light his gardens. I mean, this dude was evil, evil, evil. And there's story after story after story in the Roman Empire of persecutions towards Christians. And the history is this. Christians were persecuted, and guess what happened? They grew. They were persecuted for their faith. They were told to recant, and they grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And it got to the point that when Constantine took over, and then he sees this vision and hears this voice and has to deal with Christ, and then he wins this battle after making this commitment to God. He wins this battle, then he thinks that he wins because of God's hand. And so now you have this population where you have a bunch of Christians that were persecuted and they're ever growing. And then you have pagan Rome, and now you become the emperor of the entire empire. <coughs> well, as you become the emperor of the entire empire, if you side with the Christians, what are the pagans going to do? Rebel and revolt. If you side with the pagans, what are the Christians going to do? Revolt, especially when you say that you heard someone speak as if it was an angel from heaven or some sort, and by the sign that you're going to conquer, and then you win that battle. So he was kind of caught in between the two. So what did he do? Just smushed them together. He put them together, and it became the Holy Roman Empire. And that's what happened with the Edict of Milan. And think about this for a second. If you have a guy who is the ruler, and he's promising... Things like exemption from taxes, if you're clergy. If he's, if he's promising 20 pieces of gold and a white robe for all new converts, guess what's going to happen? False converts. 
I mean, seriously. Okay, you're gonna give out free money? Uh, sign me up. <laughs> I'm still gonna be a pagan. I'm still gonna do whatever I want, but I'll be a Christian too. I mean, this is what happens all the time. So in churches, what they end up doing is when they lower their standards and they start doing things to appeal to the world, the world comes in for sure, but out goes Christ. Because you can't have both. I mean, what did Jesus say? You can't serve God and mammon. You can't have two gods. It's either one or the other. And he also said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. I mean, he made it very, very clear. When Jesus, when he, when he came, he said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword to divide mother from father. I mean, that's what he does. When God shows up, he divides. And it's not because he hates people. It's because the world hates him. And what God has to offer, no one wants. And that's the problem with a popular Christianity. If Christianity becomes popular, look out. Because it is not legit. It can't be. There's no way. True Bible believers have always been in the minority. Always. Always. They've always been in the minority. So keep that in mind as you guys keep growing up and making decisions and doing other things. Okay? All right. Council of Nicaea, 325. Constantine invites all clergy to this all-expenses-paid meeting to determine the official doctrines of the Catholic Church. Delegates came from every region of the Roman Empire except Britain, and that's where a lot of our heritage comes from. That's why I kind of called that out. The focus was on Christ and his relationship to God. They concluded with what is known as the Nicene Creed. This would be revised in 381 with additional doctrines adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. So here's the whole idea behind it. Constantine married the pagan Roman system to Christianity in 313 with the Edict of Milan. Satan's counterfeit church was born. And then we looked at Acts 19 last week about that. Um, we don't have time to look at that tonight. Also remember that this system was not really new because of a man named Nimrod in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10, 8 through 10. And there's some other things we're going to be talking about with that. So when you get some time, take a look at that. You had a guy that was a ruler, and he decided to develop his own system of religion in his own city with its own government. And it was a one-world system, just like the Roman Empire was the strongest, most farthest-reaching empire in the, in the known world. Okay, then you got Augustine. Augustine, which was alive from 354 to 430 A.D. Augustine is often purported within the history books as a really good dude, and he's referred to as a church father. Augustine was not good. He was not good. And you'll read that, and you'll read that, but he is not good. If you go back to his writings and you study his own writings, you'll find that he believes some crazy, crazy doctrines. So he provided the theology to complement the structure of the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. One of the most influential theologians of all time, but not for the better. He concocts a doctrinal theology that mixes all of the false teachings from the previous 300 years with a little bit of truth. Remember, Satan always mixes in a little truth to make things look good. His beliefs include man is a two-part being, which is not true. The Bible says three. He believes in infant baptism, which the Bible does not teach. He believes everything was created at once and not in seven days, and that's not what Genesis 1 says. The Bible is not to be taken literally, but metaphorically, which is not what the Bible says. Sacraments are vital and only valid if administered by the Roman Catholic Church, which is not what the Bible says. And the Jew is God's chosen people and to be respected. So we at least had that one. All right, so now let's talk about their authorities. When you talk about the Roman Catholic Church, like Father Mike had said, it's all about authority. And so let's talk about authorities here for a second. So when it comes to false religions, and you'll see this as we go through this whole study, all false religions have more than one authority, all of them. Every single false religion has more than one authority. That's why he, we at our church, we believe in the word of God as our only and final authority. Whatever this says, this is what we believe. 
It doesn't really matter what our tradition has been as a church. It doesn't matter what our culture tells us. We believe whatever this book says, that is what we follow. And that is very, very safe. And so if the Bible doesn't talk about it, then we can't take a firm stand on it. We can have preferences on some things, but we can't take a firm stand on it. So anytime a church or a religion takes a firm stand on something that they cannot prove from the Bible, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. You've got to be able to back it up with the scriptures. So the authorities. So the first one that we talked about last week was the Catholic Bible. The Catholic Bible contains additional books called the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha in the Catholic Bible are interweaved into the Old Testament. So if you go to the library or if you may have one or pick one up at like a, I don't know, garage sale or flea market or something like that, you'll find that the Apocrypha is interweaved into the Old Testament books. Now, some people say, well, what about the original publication of the King James Bible? Didn't it have the Apocrypha? Yes, it did. But the Apocrypha was together in the middle between the Old and New Testament and specifically called out to say it was for historical reference only. They even said it was not uh, divine, divinely inspired scripture, that it was not considered scripture by any of the Jews prior to that point, that it is to be used only for historical purposes. And we do that all the time. I use encyclopedias for history. I use what's called the International Standard Bible Dictionary for different information historically. So there's nothing wrong with that. I just need to make sure that I'm using the right stuff. The Bible is my final authority, but I can also get other pieces of information from historical references. Okay, this Bible is traced back to Alexandria, Egypt, to the Codexes, which is the fancy word for a manuscript or a writing, uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Those are the names of those two codexes. And also from the Latin Vulgate, primarily translated by Jerome. Uh, Jerome was a hardcore Roman Catholic, and the Latin Vulgate was the uh, Roman Catholic translation of the Latin scriptures. All modern translations in existence today trace back to this corrupt line of manuscripts except the KJV. And that is absolutely true. I have done hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of research and study, things that I've fallen asleep reading because they've been so exciting. And I'm telling you, it's true. It's absolutely true. Um, so you can do that yourself if you want to know some more information about that on where to find that information. Uh, I can give you a list of at least 20 books that I have in my office, and so can Rick because he just read through them last trimester in JBI. Many verses have been altered or removed similar to translations like the NIV, NASB, etc. Examples would include like Acts 8, 37, and 38. Um, that is completely missing from the New International Version. Um, other versions, I think like the NASB, they don't remove it, but they actually make it look like it's not missing by taking part of one verse and part of another verse and creating a new verse 37. There's scriptures that do that all the time. So that's just one small example. All right, and so what does the Bible say? And this is where we left off. God promised to keep and preserve his words. He has promised that. Look it up in Psalm 12, 6, and 7, Psalm 1, 1989, Matthew 24. God said that he would keep his words. And God said that he would magnify, he's magnified his word above his name. And this is really simple to understand as you guys move on to page four. This is very simple to understand. If God can create something out of nothing, he can keep something perfect. He can. If he can just think it and then it starts to exist, God can take something that already exists and keep it intact. Like in my mind, when I think about that on a very logical playing field, I think that making something out of nothing is a whole lot harder than keeping something that exists pure. I think it's a whole lot harder to just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to create something new like stars and boom, they're there. 
I can't do stuff like that. But I can copy word for word from the scriptures and keep it preserved. I can do that. I can copy it down. And if I make a mistake, I can throw that page out and start over again. I can do something like that. But God has promised to keep his word. So it's not hard for God to do that. It's totally possible. And if God has staked his reputation on doing that, then you better believe that he would do it. I mean, this is our primary authority. This is from where we learn about God. So don't you think that God would actually keep it free from error? Because God's perfect. And if he wants to be known perfectly, then he would keep this free from error. He absolutely would. So now the question is, is where is it? And that starts a whole another line of, um, of research. Okay, so that's their first authority is the Catholic Bible. The second authority that the Roman Catholic Church has is traditions. Traditions. Traditions that were handed down by papal and or council decrees. Your blank there is papal, P-A-P-A-L, papal, not PayPal, papal, papal, sorry, I'm an idiot sometimes, papal. Traditions were handed down by papal and or council decree. Some examples of these throughout history have been these. The infallibility of the Pope, he can't make any mistakes. The worship of Mary. Her immaculate conception, the assumption of Mary, which just means that she, you know, basically she, she became pregnant without having sex, which is immaculate conception, which we actually believe that according to the scriptures. But then the assumption of Mary is that she was immediately ushered into heaven because of her deified state. And that is not what the Bible says. Now, when she died, she didn't go to heaven, but that was because she trusted in Jesus Christ as her savior, not because she was divine. And so that's the assumption of Mary. Purgatory, if there's some halfway point for people to go, that aren't quite perfect yet need to suffer through the fires of purgatory before going into heaven. That is nowhere in the scriptures. Using the Latin language, the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that Latin is the purest language and that they dare not use any other languages in their churches. That's why when you go into a Roman Catholic Church when they do their services, they use Latin. They use Latin like crazy. Now Latin, I don't know if you know this or not, is a dead language. What does that mean? No one speaks it. But yet, that is the holy language to use and they still hold to that. Kind of weird, in my opinion. Uh, kissing the Pope's feet, definitely weird. I wouldn't be doing that. I don't like kissing people's feet. Celibacy of the priesthood, that doesn't say that anywhere in the scriptures. Lent, nope. Canonization of dead saints, holy water, indulgences. Indulgences are paying money in order to release yourself from the penalty of certain sins. Transubstantiation, that is a big word that you want to use to impress people. All that means is when they take communion, when they take mass, that the wafer turns into the literal body of Jesus and the blood turns into the literal blood of Jesus, the wine. That's transubstantiation. That there's a process that takes place that's very mystical, that these things turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Confessions of sins to a priest. Doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. Refusing the Bible to be studied by the layman. They still believe that today. Clothing. Certain, you should wear certain stuff. Jewelry, chants, decorations, icons, rosary, statues, pilgrimages, etc. All these things are not in the Bible, and yet they are things that they hold to as an equal authority to their Catholic Bible. They also hold to spiritual experiences of Catholics around the world. Examples are statue of Mary crying, blood, healing by touching the Pope, uh, image of Mary and grilled cheese sandwiches, and etc. And that sounds really, really funny, but it is totally legit. In fact, I think, I think you can probably go on Amazon. I think you can buy a toaster that actually toasts the faces in them now. 
just in case you wanted to know that. But that is something that they do. They, they, they can't explain it, but they know that that is a spiritual experience, that God must have been here or something. Um, an example of this that I saw firsthand was in Costa Rica. There was this um, basilica that was built, Roman Catholic basilica, that was built on this rock. And the reason why it was built upon this rock was that this young child had this little doll and uh, was out in the woods playing with this little doll and um, ended up coming back with it, I guess when it was playing, and put it in a little box and then woke up the next morning, opened up the box, and it was gone. And so instead of, you know, looking or thinking that they misplaced it or whatever, went back out into the woods to the place where this child was playing and here found it on the rock uh, out in the middle of the woods, wherever, that it was there. And so it was strange. Like, I know I brought this home, told it to the mom. The mom went and got one of the Catholic priests. They declared that it was a miracle and that somehow it was miraculously showed up on this rock. There's something special about this rock. So let's go ahead and build a basilica on top of this rock because obviously this place must be holy. There is a, uh, a reservoir of water nearby. And they believe that that water was also holy as well. And so where this basilica was built, there was a water pipe that was coming out at the bottom of it that people would buy um, little jugs, big and small, at this little almost like concession stand, Roman Catholic Church concession stand. They would buy – that sounds weird. I'm sorry. I'm just saying what's come to my mind. Um, where they would buy like these canisters and fill it up with this holy water so they could take it home to heal infirmities from grandparents or, or whatever. Now, the part about this that's disgusting is that the water, they found traces of fecal matter in the water. And so it would make people sick because, but they didn't care. They didn't care about that because it was holy water. And they believed that it still had the ability to heal people. And so when it comes to this, and this is just a great example I wanted to share with you guys, because when it comes to these sorts of things, people that believe in traditions over the authority of the word of God, you can't really reason with them at all. You can't reason with them because it's based on their experience. It's based on their superstition that they have. And it doesn't matter if there's fecal matter in the water. They're still going to do it anyway, even if it makes people sick because they believe that God has somehow blessed it. So you can't really reason with them, which is very, very difficult. And that's one of the reasons why it makes it so hard to reach these people with the truth. What do you got? Is this the Basilica in Cartago? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, it's crazy beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, but it's a business, hardcore business. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it is. And what they would do is once a year they would have this, this week-long uh, celebration where people would come from all over the place. And once they, got to, once they got to the city limits, they would then begin walking on their knees because they don't feel worthy to be walking into town. And as, as part of an act of penance, they would walk on their knees to the basilica and then on their knees still go all the way down to the altar. So by the time they got there, if you can imagine, you'd have blood like crazy up the steps and down the middle aisle all the way up to the front of the, uh, whatever you want to call it, in the church, in the basilica. But that's what they would do. That's what they would do. And tradition is very, very difficult to deal with when it comes to spiritual conversations. Okay, so what does the Bible say? So when it comes to traditions and the authority of traditions, what does the Bible say? The Bible says very, very clearly that mankind habitually makes the commandments of God of none effect through tradition. That's what we do. A lot of us, our human nature is that we want to hang on to tradition and we let go of the word of God. Let me give you an example of this. Go over to, um, let's look at Matthew, Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Matthew 15. 
Matthew 15. And we'll just look at verses 1 through 3. It keeps going, but it'll give you the idea. So then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? So, first of all, just think about this on a on practical level. Pharisees are talking to God incarnate. Like, the God that the Israelites worshipped the entire Old Testament, he's there. All the sacrifices, the burning bush, all that stuff. You know, when God came down and spoke to Abraham and told him that, you know, your seed's going to be like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the seashore, that same God is right there. He's right there. He's standing right in front of him. And they're asking him, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Do you see how backwards that is? But there's so many people that do that. They do that like crazy when it comes to, why are you obeying the word of God more than the things that we're used to doing? I mean, that's kind of the same thing that they're asking. And so then Jesus says, why are you violating the scriptures and keeping your tradition? I mean, it's a really easy thing when you look at it, but that's the, they were trapped. They were stuck in this thing. They were forsaking the word of God in order to keep their own traditions. This is what we do all the time. And on a very, on another practical level for you guys, you know, this could be the same as like, um, all right, you've set up a tradition in your heart that you need to read the word of God every day, but you don't actually do anything about it and it doesn't change your life. It's the same thing. Why are you so willing? Why, why do you just want to get into the scriptures so you can check it off your checklist, but you don't actually do anything about it? You don't actually live it out. That's the same thing. It's the exact same thing, just on our level. Or you can come to church every Sunday or every Wednesday, but then every other day during the week, you don't do anything about what you know. It's the same thing. We're keeping the tradition, but we're forsaking the word of God. It's so important for us to understand that we do that too. All right, so that's traditions. And then thirdly, you have the magisterium of the church. I had to talk like that. I'm sorry. The magisterium of the church. Now, this one is really interesting. When you go back into history and you study this out, you have the different uh, structure and the offices within the Roman Catholic Church. So you have the Pope, the Cardinals, the Archbishops, Bishops, and Priests. Now, with the Edict of Milan and the other things that they were doing— in order to merge pagan Rome with Christianity, they had to bring these things together. So think of pagan Rome for a second. You had um, like Zeus, right? I mean, he was one of the, the, the gods. Who else were among the gods? Jupiter. Jupiter, yep. What, Hercules? Yes, Hercules. I always think of Medea. Yep. 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 So there's, there's all sorts of, so they would have statues. So today if you went to Vatican City and you saw the statue that was actually originally Zeus, it would actually be named Peter at the bottom. That's what they did. They took the statues of the Roman gods and they renamed them to be Christian gods, people, saints that they would look up to. They did the same thing within the whole administration of the empire. So you had emperors, you had the senate, you had imperial governors, you had provincial governors, and then you had the civitas or the mayors. And so what they just did is they just completely swapped them and just renamed their roles. So the pope became the emperor, vice versa. 
The cardinals in the Senate, same thing. Archbishops and imperial governors, same thing. Bishops and provincial governors, same thing. Priests and the civitas or the mayors would be the same thing. This is why, just think about this for a second. If you have seen any sort of uh, movie that took place like, you know, back in the old, old days. In every small town, what did they have? They had like a saloon because you had to drink and get drunk. What else did they have? They had a bank. Because they had to rob the bank. <laughs> That's a good point. They had to have a doctor. Right? They had to have a grocery store. You had to have a blacksmith. But you also had to have a priest. Had to have a priest in every city. Like, that's not a coincidence at all. At all. This goes all the way back to Catholic tradition. So every mayor of the city became like a priest, and that's why you see in every town you've got priests, or even in our case where you have you know, cardinals and archbishops that are over large areas of other Catholic churches in the area. So they do it this way on purpose. And this really came uh, to be what they did as far as the swapping of rules and renaming of things. This is what they did as part of the Edict of Milan. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will say their founders are Jesus Christ and the Apostle Peter, their first pope, from that point forward, authority was passed on from generation to generation by apostolic succession unto this day. We've already mentioned this. The first pope was Leo the Great in 440 AD. And moreover, Acts ends with Paul and not Peter, if you've ever thought about it on those terms. If Peter was that important, I believe that we would be hearing more from him in the scriptures than what we do. The book of Acts is one of the most major transition points in the entire Bible. You have Peter in the first part of it, and then he dwindles off the scene, and then you don't see him ever again. Why is that? If he's that important, he's the first pope, you would think the book of Acts would end with Peter. And you would think that Peter would write the book of Romans. And you think that Peter would be writing all these other epistles. But you don't see it anywhere. It's kind of weird. doesn't make sense. All right, and then I have one thing I wanted to mention, but we're going to end with it. Um, we're going to do this. So, But what does the Bible say? When it comes to the structure of the church, what does the Bible say? So the Bible says this. Each local church is independent and self-governing. Go to Acts 14. Acts 14. All right. Acts 14. So Paul's passing through these cities. It says in verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium and Antioch, verse 22 of chapter 14, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And then here's our focus verse. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord on whom they believed. So this verse tells you exactly what Paul did. So Paul would come in and he would come into a city and he would preach the gospel people would believe. And once that the group of believers would come together, he would then appoint elders. And he would appoint an elder, one or more, depending on the number of people. And they would be then in charge of that church in that particular city. And then he moved on from there and he went to the next city. But it says before that he moved on, they prayed with them, they fasted with them, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So that means that that elder of that local congregation was responsible before God to take care of those people. That's what it says when it says commended them to the Lord. God was the one to take care of that local assembly. They've always been independent. 
Paul helped, and he went from place to place to place, but each elder was responsible for that local church. Okay? I wanted to show you that. And according to the scriptures, there's only two offices in the local church. We don't have time to look at all these, but you can look at these verses later. You have the elder, which is also called the bishop, which is also called the pastor. So when you compare 1 Timothy 3 to Titus 1 to Acts 20, you'll see that all those terms are used synonymously. So a bishop is an elder, an elder is a pastor, and a pastor is a bishop. That's how this works, okay? So that means that our church, technically, we could rename our titles, and I could be Bishop Stephen. No, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. Plus, I think of chess every time I think of bishop, and I don't... I like chess, but not that much. So, and we could do that. We could do that. We could also say elder. But the reason why we don't do that is because those terms are used in other denominations. And so when these people hear the term bishop, when they hear the term elder, they think of certain denominations or certain things. You know, like archbishop. I think of Roman Catholic Church. You know, there's some uh, charismatic churches that use the term bishop now when it comes to their pastors. You know, we don't really believe in those things. So if we use, start using those terms, then people are going to think, oh, you must be a priest. Or you must be part of the Catholic Church. Or you must be part of a, a charismatic church. No. No, not at all. Or when it comes to elder. You know elders? You know where they're used primarily? Calvinistic churches. Calvinistic churches use the term elder. Now, they don't necessarily believe that the elder is the pastor. They believe that there's an elder board of men who have the office of an elder who then kind of keep the pastors accountable. I used to be a part of a church like that. That's nowhere in the scriptures. People that are in charge of the churches are the pastors, and they are used under the term of bishop and elder and pastor in the scriptures. The second office in the church are the deacons, and that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Outside of that, you do not see any other offices in the scriptures. Those are the only two offices within the church. Okay. Now, I wanted to show you guys this. So we'll talk about the um, sacraments next week. So we'll get to that, the seven sacraments next week, and we're gonna, we'll go through that. Because um, in order to understand Roman Catholicism, you've got to understand the seven sacraments. But I want to end with this. Go to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. So those of you guys that are in our Daily in the Word group, me, I told you I would share with you guys what I read from my devotions today. So this was absolutely amazing, mind-blowing. You might actually think this is super boring, and you might tune me out. If you want to, go ahead, whatever. But I was like... I mean, honestly, I'm doing, I'm reading and everything, and I'm taking notes. And, and, um, and when I was doing this, I was in my office, and Aaron Stanley was over at the other desk. And I'm like, Aaron, I got to talk to you about this. And he's like, what? And I told him about it, and he's like, that's really cool. I'm like, yeah. And then I kept reading. I'm like, Aaron, I got to talk to you again. There's something else. So we just talked about how within the Roman Catholic Church, you had Constantine that took pagan Rome and married it unto Christianity and began to exchange some stuff and to basically create its, its own religion within the Roman Empire using the name of God, right? Okay, so in 1 Kings chapter 12, let me just give you a little bit of background, and then I'm going to share a little bit of this and read a couple places to you. So, 1 Kings 12. First thing to note, it takes place after 1 Kings 11. Very important. 12 comes after 11. Now, in chapter 11, you have Solomon who ends up making some terrible decisions. Chapter 10, chapter 11, his heart begins, begins, uh, ends up being turned away because he loves strange women and started worshiping other gods and forsaking the God of Israel. Now he ends up dying and Rehoboam, his son, ends up taking the throne. 
Now, what ends up happening is when he and his heart was turned away, God said, Solomon, because you have done the opposite of what I told you to do, and I warned you not to do that, I warned you not to worship other gods, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. But not during your lifetime, I'm going to take it away from your son. However, I'm going to leave one part of the kingdom with him. And so this is what is, if you've heard anything within the Old Testament, you hear of the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. This is where this comes from. So the ten northern tribes follow a guy named Jeroboam. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, follow Rehoboam. And you have now two separate kingdoms that are supposed to be all of God's people. Okay? So when this happens, Jeroboam now takes the ten northern tribes. And God actually told Jeroboam, if you do what's right, I will establish you and I will do well by you and you will be great. So even though he's the bad dude in the story, God told him, I will bless you if you obey me. Now, what ends up happening here in chapter 12 is something quite, quite interesting. So the kingdom is rent from Rehoboam. He forsakes the counsel of the old men and the kingdom is now split. But here's, here's something interesting that has happened. Okay, so in verse 25, it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now, the, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and will go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Okay, so he split the kingdom. Jerusalem is where the temple is. That's where people go and do all their sacrifices. Three times a year, all the males are to present themselves before the Lord. Jeroboam's like, we can't do that anymore. That's in Judah. So if that's in Judah's territory, if my people go there, they're going to see, they're going to remember God's blessings, and they're going to repent from turning away, and they're going to return under Rehoboam. I can't have that. I'm the king. They're my people. I want their authority in my life. I want to be the king. So he doesn't want to give up becoming king. Got it? All right. So now, what does he do? Verse 28. Whereupon the king, Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Who else said that in the Old Testament? Golden calves presented it to him and said, These are thy gods, O Israel. Anybody? Come on, come on, come on. Aaron, Stanley. Aaron. <laughs> That's why I'm like, Aaron, you're a heretic. No. Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron. When Moses was up on the mountain, Aaron made golden calves and said, Here are thy gods, O Israel. And then God said to Moses, Moses, get you down off the mountain. The people are sinning against me. Behold, I want to wipe them out. I want to kill them all. Okay, so is what Jeroboam, what he's doing, I mean, that's really godly. Like, he's really smart, and he's, no, no, no. No, he's repeating the same errors that his forefathers did. And so, verse 29, And he set the one in Bethel, which is huge, and the other he put in he put he in Dan, and this thing became a sin for the people went in to worship before the one even unto Dan, and he made an house high of high place of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people which were not of the sons of Levi, and Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. Oh my word! Jeroboam is doing what Constantine did. This is exactly what Constantine did. 
He's like, all right, I need rule of my people. So what should I do? Let's compromise. I'm going to create a new religion. I'm going to set up a new feast. I'm going to start renaming stuff. I'm going to start appointing my own priests from whoever I want. I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I, because I need control of my people. That's Constantine. That's exactly what Constantine did. You see it? Okay, now look at this in verse 13. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Woo, talk about creepy. So you have a prophet out of Judah that comes over to one of the altars that Jeroboam had set up, and he's like, God is going to do right by this. He's not happy about this. And so all of the priests of your gods, they're all going to die, and their bones are going to be burned upon this altar, and Josiah is going to do it. Okay? And he says, and he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up so that he could not pull it again to him. So Jeroboam reaches out to touch this prophet, and when his hand touches the prophet, his hand withers up, and he couldn't even take it back again. So talk about this creepy little withered up hand. Right? And then what happens? Verse 5, The altar was rent, also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him again, and became as it was before. So he healed the guy. Verse 7, And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. Okay, this guy is like bipolar. He just wanted him dead. And then his hand withers. He now heals it, and he's like, Come into my house, and I want to give you a reward. All right, I don't trust this guy at all. Okay, let's keep him going. And the man of God said unto the king, verse 8, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Okay, so he obeys God. God's like, nope, you're going to go there, prophesy, you're going to give this message. And then when you go back, you're not supposed to go the way you came, and you're not to eat any meat or any bread or drink any water until you go home. Okay? All right. Hang with me. Now we're going to get to this part. Verse 11. Now there dwelt an old prophet in where? Bethel. Now what just happened in Bethel back in chapter 12? The calves. Yes, the calves. And one was in Bethel. The other one was in Dan. Now, here's something else that's interesting. If you want to write down this reference later, write this one down. 2 Chronicles 11, 13 through 17. 2 Chronicles 11, 13 through 17. This cross-reference tells you at this same time when Jeroboam took over, something happened that's not recorded here in 1 Kings. All the priests and the Levites and the prophets that were legit, that loved God, and did what was right, they made a decision. 
Jeroboam has now taken over. We could either stay here in his area or we can forsake our area and go to Jerusalem and be with Rehoboam because we know God is there. And they made the decision to leave. So all of the legitimate priests, Levites, prophets left and went to Jerusalem. This guy stayed. This guy stayed in Bethel. He stayed with Jeroboam. He compromised and he decided to stay. So now he may have been a legitimate prophet of God at one point in time, but now he's a heretic. Now he's gone wayward. Now he's not in the will of God. All right? Okay. So, and it says, there, there, there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king. Them they told also to their father, and their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon. And went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread, which of course was a... Mm-mm. Remember, he's not supposed to do that. He's supposed to go home. He's not supposed to go and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. He said unto him, this is the old dude again, he says, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. This is like soap opera central. Okay? So he went back with them and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which the Lord did, did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled for him the ass to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it. The lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, the men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that besought him came back from the way he heard, heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God who is disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake unto him. Okay. And then what ends up happening is the old man takes the body of the young prophet and goes and he buries it and he mourns for him. Okay. So now what's this whole deal? Why in the world are we doing this? Okay. All right. So here's, here's the thing that God really taught me today. Jeroboam, Constantine. He ends up compromising and marrying and doing his own thing. Now you have a guy who used to be a legitimate prophet in our vernacular, Christian, who now decided to stay with Jeroboam, Constantine, and end up doing whatever he wants to do. A guy comes who wanted nothing to do with Constantine, Jeroboam, and utters a prophecy against him and how God was going to bring judgment upon them. And then God tells him, go back the way you came. He was going to go do that. This old guy, false prophet, false Christian, heresy, goes and tells the guy, come and eat with me. No big deal. It'll be fine. I'm not supposed to. And he's, ah, but the angel told me. Oh, okay. Well, the angel told you fine. And then God says, okay, you're going to die. All right. Here's the deal. What killed him? 
A lion. Who else is the lion in the scripture? The devil. First Peter 5, 8. He is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When we compromise and do our own thing and get married into the world, you have now opened up, your disobedience has now opened up your life to be destroyed by the devil. Constantine, what he did, he opened up the whole of Christianity to be destroyed by the devil. This was the plan of the devil all along. And when we do that in our life, it's the exact same result. But notice the false prophet, when he went back to get the carcass, the lion was still there, and the lion didn't touch the false prophet. You know why? Because he wasn't a threat. Many of us were not a threat to the devil because we're already compromised. I'm telling you, stuff like this, I've never seen this in a million years when I've been reading the Bible. I'm not reading the Bible for a million years. But I've never seen this. I've read 1 Kings so many stinking times. And ironically, the day that we're talking about Constantine is the day that I read this. And I'm like, ah, it's so important for us to stay firm to what the truth is in our life. Because the moment that we compromise and we go wayward, we're opening ourselves up to be destroyed of the devil. And our testimony can be killed. And the people that we can reach as a result can be killed. And we just need to be careful. We need to be careful. We've got to be. Know what God has said and obey it. If that guy would have just listened to God through and through, despite anything that he heard, if he would have just obeyed God, he would have been fine. He probably would have continued to be a prophet, doing the will of God, making impact on people's lives. But now he can't. He's dead. He was mauled by the lion. So just think about that. Let that settle in a little bit. Because that's something that really convicted me. It really, really convicted me. And back in church history, as far as this is concerned, one of the most amazing things that I've seen is that there was a group of people that decided to not be part of Constantine's deal. And that is where our Baptist history comes from. We are not Protestants because we were never part of the Roman Catholic Church and we were never part of it to the point where we needed to protest because we were never part of it. That's where Protestant comes from, Protestant. There is a pocket of believers throughout human history that have never been part of the Roman Catholic Church because when Constantine was doing this, those people said, "Uh uh-uh, nope, we don't want anything to do with it. They were like Judah and Benjamin. Nope, we're sticking with God. They're like the prophets that said, nope, I'm leaving Jeroboam's area and I'm going where God is. That's what those people did at the cost of their life, at the cost of their family's life. It was amazing, absolutely amazing that the scripture would put that pattern in there. All right, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get out of here. God, thank you for our time tonight in the scriptures. And I pray, God, that you would just nail these things deep within our hearts and minds, that we would be able to make a difference in people's hearts and lives. And not because we uh, are smarter than them, but because we love them and we love you. And so I pray that we'd have the right perspective, that we don't learn these things so we can beat other people up. We learn these things so we can be confident in what we believe and that we can be proper ministers in this world. So thank you once again. I pray that we would... Just take advantage of the opportunities that you give us and that we would do a good job for your namesake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.